Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love you to open it now to Psalm 31. The superscription here says, To the choir master, a psalm of David. We aren't really sure when David wrote this psalm, and the imagery in the psalm seems to have been drawn from a variety of different experiences. Maybe David wrote it later in life, reflecting back upon any number of times when he felt trapped or under pressure before finally praying for and experiencing divine deliverance. Willem van Gemmeren says here, The tone of the psalm vacillates between lament and thanksgiving, but the nature of the troubles is unclear. Thus, the psalm functions as a sort of ready-made prayer in times of trouble, and it was used as such by several different people in the Bible. Jonah alludes to this prayer as he prayed for deliverance in the belly of the fish. Jesus prayed verse 5 as he hung upon the cross. It appears that Jeremiah incorporated snippets from verse 13 in his subsequent prayers and lamentations as well. So this psalm functions as a bit of a tutorial, as it were, in terms of how the psalms were used and employed within the covenant community. Derek Kidner says here, It illustrates the role of the psalms in meeting a great variety of human needs beyond the bounds of formal worship and the original experiences of the authors, close quote. So hear that. Sometimes as modern day Bible readers, we pay so much attention to the original context that we end up limiting the use and application of the passage. But that's not how the Bible works. The Bible establishes patterns and principles and furnishes insights about God's unchanging character that can be lifted up out of the original context and dropped down quite usefully in a myriad of other situations. So this is a good psalm. If you ever find yourself surrounded by enemies, or if you ever find yourself in a jam, or if you ever feel like sickness and frailty are pressing in on you, or if you feel like there are people out to get you, or if you feel yourself the victim of slander, lies, and malicious gossip, whenever you feel troubles of various kinds pressing in on you, Psalm 31 should be your go-to psalm. Let it guide and direct your prayers. That's how a previous generation made use of these inspired songs and prayers. Theodore Beza, for example, says here, Because there are various circumstances of misfortune by which the Lord either tests or disciplines his people, it is useful when reading the Psalms, which contain prayers spoken by the Spirit of the Lord, to consider what is common among all of them, and what is particular to each one, so that we would use them agreeably and appropriately. Quote. So that we may use them agreeably and appropriately. That is exactly what we should be doing with these Psalms. We, Of course we should be asking, what did this mean originally? Of course we should be asking, what was the original circumstance that gave rise to it? Yes, yes, yes. We need to understand those things 100%. But then, and this is the part that modern-day evangelicals often don't do, but then we should go on to ask, now, how may it be used today? What typical human problems 
would be well served by a psalm or a prayer like this. That's the piece we often forget, which is why the psalms often feel so foreign to us. This is a song or a prayer for a brother or sister in a jam. If troubles are pressing in and you need somewhere to hide, then this is your go-to psalm. So hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Of course, the first thing that jumps out at the modern-day reader as we hear that is the fact that these words in verse 5 were the last words spoken on the cross by Jesus in Luke's gospel. Luke 23, 44-46 says, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So I think there are a bunch of things that should be said here. First of all, we should see how Jesus made use of the Psalms. We're supposed to be following Jesus. So if he read and used the Bible this way, then obviously we want to be reading and using the Bible this way. Jesus apparently knew the Psalms well enough to use them as the basis for his own personal prayers. Spurgeon used to say that if you pricked John Bunyan with a pin, his blood would be bibline. Bunyan read so much Bible that it just spilled out of him at every occasion. And so it was with Jesus. And so it ought to be with us. Learn the Psalms so well that you can use them as the basis for your own extemporaneous prayers in whatever situation you may find yourself in. Secondly, I think we'd want to say that somehow in the mystery of God, who, of course, is the ultimate author of all Scripture, this psalm, though written by David, the immediate author, was written ultimately for David's greater son, Jesus. God orchestrated circumstances in David's life that would provide the fodder for this reflection that would then fit perfectly the feelings of Jesus on the cross. So, in a sense, there are two versions of Psalm 31. Two parallel, mutually interpreting, and equally valid versions. All right? There's what David wrote for David coming out of David's actual situation, his, his real-life experiences, and then used by regular Old Testament worshipers. Okay? So there's that Psalm 31. But then there is also simultaneously what David in the Spirit wrote for and about Jesus. So Moise Amaro, one of the lesser-known Protestant reformers, says here, Everything that is contained in this verse, as well as all the rest, can be about both David as the type and Christ as the substance that type foreshadows. Close quote. All right, so both types of reading are legitimate. 
There is a general use and a prophetic or Christological use. The general use is to say that whenever God's people find themselves in a jam, they should be like David. They should immediately go to prayer. They should be active. Oh God, rescue me. Oh God, incline your ear to me. Hear me, God. I entrust my situation to your care. That should be your immediate instinct. Make God your refuge and your shelter. Take your problems to him. Be like Hezekiah and spread them out in the presence of the Lord and say, Lord, are you seeing this? Have you heard? Do you know what's going on? Oh, Lord, rescue me. Calvin says here, whoever commits himself into God's hand and to his guardianship not only constitutes him the arbiter of life and death to him, but also calmly depends on him for protection amidst all his dangers, closed quote. He continues, as Various tempests of grief disturb us and even sometimes throw us down headlong or drag us from the direct path of duty or at least remove us from our post. The only remedy which exists for setting things at rest is to consider that God, who is the author of our life, is also its preserver. This, then, is the only means of lightening all our burdens and preserving us from being swallowed up of overmuch sorrow, close quote. So that's the regular use. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Cast your burdens on him. Lay it out and leave it with him. Entrust your situation to the Lord. Claim again the promise that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's what David is doing here. Van Gemeren says, the psalmist's confidence rests in two convictions. Yahweh will deliver for the sake of his name and he is the rock of his covenant people, closed quote. So God is committed to his covenant people. His name is tied up with our name. If we go down, then in a sense, he goes down by reputation. So count on that. Count on the fact that God loves us. God loves you. He has bound himself to you, believer, in Christ. He is committed to having your life say something glorious about Jesus. So that's good. You can, you can count on that. You can rest in that. Commit your troubles to him. Say, God, I'm your child. I bear the name of Christ. See me, Lord, and act according to your faithfulness. You can pray that and then sleep like a baby. That's the regular use of this psalm. Now, the Christological use is to see this as a reminder that all the plots, all the schemes, all the malice directed at Jesus was pure and utter foolishness. As Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Close quote. What utter stupidity. What culpable foolishness. How can you plot against the Lord and his anointed? Who can deliver from the Lord's hands? Nothing happened to Jesus that wasn't part of God's plan. Even the wicked, cruel, deceitful, and vengeful aspects of his crucifixion were ultimately turned by God toward the end of his great victory and glorification. Jesus knew that, and he entrusted himself completely to that praise the Lord. In verse 6, David is positioning himself for an answer to prayer and even begins to move into the space of thanksgiving for the deliverance he knows is coming. 
He says, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hands of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Now, the word hate in the Psalms of David always causes us a bit of pause. The English word hate has a sense of malice and emotionalism associated with it that the Hebrew word sane doesn't exactly mirror. William Wilson defines the word this way. He says, to hate, which is not always to be understood in the strongest sense, but must sometimes mean only a less degree of love and regard to be cold and indifferent to, to show less favor to, closed quote. So this is David saying, I am not standing with people who are putting their trust in all kinds of nonsense. That's not my crowd. I'm standing over here. I have thrown in my lot with the Lord. That's how you position yourself for blessing. You step away from the crowd and you go all in with Yahweh. Now, as for worthless idols or lying vanities, as the old King James Version had it, Calvin again is helpful here. He says, Whatever vain hopes, therefore, we form to ourselves, which may draw us off from our confidence in God, David generally denominates vanities, yea, false or lying vanities, because although they feed us for a time with magnificent promises, in the end, they beguile and disappoint us, close quote. So you've got false hopes and silly fantasies and insubstantial nonsense over there. And David has given all of that the stiff arm. He said, I'm not trusting in any of that. My hope is in the Lord. Now, structurally, Psalm 31 has two roughly parallel sections. We have verses 1 to 8, and then verses 9 to 24 cover basically the same ground, from feeling oppressed and attacked to crying out for and receiving deliverance. And that's a classic Hebrew approach. You say it twice, the second time a little longer. You see that everywhere in the Psalms and in all the poetical portions of Scripture. So here we go again, only this time in a slightly expanded form. Verse 9. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. So here, David seems to be thinking of a time when he was not an entirely innocent sufferer. He talks about his strength, his inner resolve, failing because of his iniquity. This section of the psalm would fit pretty well with the whole Absalom situation, for example. After David's adulterous affair with Bathsheba and the consequent murder of his friend Uriah to cover things up, David felt undermined by himself. He felt like he had no leg to stand on. How could, how could he rebuke his son for similar failings? How could he do anything? How could he say anything given all that he had done? David was literally folding in on himself and his enemies were circling. They could smell blood and they were coming for him. Verse 11, Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. 
I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Everybody loves you on the way up and everybody hates you on the way down. That's what David is experiencing here. Nobody wants to be contaminated by contact with me. He knows it. Everybody is whispering about my downfall. He hears it. Everyone is positioning for life after David. Nobody is coming to my rescue, but I trust in you, Lord. You are my God. Now, notice that. Everyone is talking about David, but David is talking to the Lord. Calvin says here, nothing is more difficult when we see our faith derided by the whole world than to direct our speech to God alone and to rest satisfied with this testimony which our conscience gives us that he is our God, closed quote. You know, at the end of the day, God is the only one you have to deal with. Let people think whatever they want. Let them write you off. Let them plot your demise, whatever. Your times, your rise, your fall, your humbling, your exaltation, all of that is in God's hands. So talk to him and trust that he is not your enemy. He's your father. So he will take you to the woodshed from time to time when you need it, but never to kill you, only to disciple you and to restore you. So it's always better to deal with God. There are tons of people, even inside the covenant community, who will delight in your troubles and who will rub their hands over every failure and misstep that you make. <laughs> Those are not the people you need to worry about. Those are not the people in charge of your process. You need to worry about God. God loves you. If you are in Christ, if you are his child, then he loves you. So he may let you stumble. He may even trip you up. But again, not to kill you. When your father humbles you, it is because he has big plans for you. Tim Keller says here, Many events are evil and grievous, yet God overrules them and works them all together in the long run for good. So in the end, our lives cannot be derailed permanently. Closed quote. <laughs> amen and amen. Verse 16. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Now, just quickly here, we've talked about how other people in the Bible use Psalm 31 in their prayers. But here is David using and personalizing Numbers 625 in his prayer. That language, the language of the priestly blessing, has become part of the leaf mold of David's mind. And it just kind of flows out of him here in slightly modified form, in extemporaneous form. And that's exactly how it should be, brothers and sisters. Bible in, prayer out. That's what David is doing. And then later in the story, other people are breathing in David's words and breathing extemporaneous prayer out. <laughs> Thanks be to God. Verse 17. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Love it. That's it exactly. When people are talking about you, 
don't return fire. Don't play tit for tat. Don't return evil for evil. Take it to God. Let the Lord vindicate you. Let the Lord shut their mouths. That's what Jesus did. Peter in 1 Peter 2, 23 says about Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, close quote. That's exactly what we're talking about here. This, this is a lost art in the contemporary evangelical world. We have become experts at returning fire, particularly on Twitter. But that's not how David does it, and that's not how Jesus did it. Take it to the Lord. Believe me, friends, God knows how to shut the liar's mouth. He knows how to break the teeth of the slanderer. He knows how to silence people forever. So you just do like Jesus and continue to entrust yourself to him who judges justly. Verse 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. David had been at death's door multiple times. And each time when he called on the Lord, the Lord drew him up out of the pit. Maybe he was thinking here of his restoration after the Absalom affair. Maybe he was thinking of one of his escapes from King Saul. Maybe he was looking at all of it like a mountain range. I don't know. But David knew, maybe better than anyone else in the Old Testament, that God knows how to rescue. He has good plans for the broken and the besieged. He knows what time it is. He knows when to send the cavalry. He's got his eye on you. And he knows the score, so trust him. Now, David almost stopped doing that. Look at verse 22 again. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. <laughs> Sometimes we say stupid, silly, and even sinful things when we're in a difficult circumstance. We tend to speak poorly under pressure. We, we tend to theologize poorly when we're afraid, just as also, by the way, when we are overly secure, as per Psalm 30, verse 6. But thankfully, God appears to discount these ill-considered utterances, as the second half of verse 22 makes plain. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord knows what to listen to, and what to ignore. Thanks be to God. Verse 23, Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong, and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. That's a good landing. The end of the matter is this, David says. Love the Lord. Throw your lot in with him. It doesn't mean you won't have trouble, but it does mean that God will be with you through it all. As the Apostle Paul said, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. 
we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting a mission project that is very close to my heart. The Letha Daycare Outreach Project is a church-based educational program designed to teach literacy, support low-income families, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boys and girls in rural South Africa. I've seen this project with my own eyes. I have shaken the hands of parents whose families have been helped. I have heard the songs and Bible verses out of the mouths of some of these dear children as they have been taught and helped to put their trust in the Lord. And nothing would be more gratifying to me than for you to show your appreciation for Into the Word by investing in these little ones. You can do that in one of two ways. You can give through the Into the Word app or by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Just click on the Give tab and you'll find giving options for both Canadian and American listeners. This is a registered project with ABWE Canada and ABWE USA. So tax receipts are available to all eligible donors. Just identify where you're listening from and click on the Fund button and select Letha Daycare Outreach. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.